Hello, Portland. This is Daniel Lyman, and uh, you are listening to the People of Portland podcast, where we talk to the best of Bridgetown, the Saints of Stumptown, the Royals of the Royce, the Royal City. Okay, they got a little sweaty. I don't know. We'll, 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 I'll keep trying those out. I like best of Bridgetown. Um, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, so yeah, before I forget, because I always forget to do this, and then I have to re-record it later, and it adds more work for me which is actually what I'm doing right now, but I'm pretending like I'm not having to re-record this. Um, please subscribe if you get a chance. That w- That's what helps people find the podcast. So just click that little button. That's like the best thing you can do to help. The second best thing you can do to help if you are enjoying the project is to share it on social media. If you are not enjoying the product pro- project, that is, then you can help out by not saying anything. So I'd appreciate that. Um, but yeah, go ahead and subscribe. That would be helpful. Thank you. I'm excited for today's episode. This is featuring Jonathan Maz. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a bit, but because he is a transportation guy and I come from a transportation family, my dad was a a civil engineer focused on transportation. He's retired now. Um, But uh, this stuff feels like it's in my blood because I grew up talking about bicycling and transportation advocacy within the city of Portland. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about this interview here. Um, before we do that, as, uh, as I started last week, I've kind of got some structure for myself here with a rant and a rave. And uh, the rant is where I kind of say something about Portland that is uh, where I want it to do better. And then the rave is where I'm feeling good about something with Portland and I want to share that. Now, I'm already breaking the rules. I gave myself that structure, but uh, I'm already going to break the rules. So my rant and my rave are going to be intertwined or very, or very, uh, they're really closely related. Okay, this past weekend was the Pride Run for the Front Runners, which is the gay running group that I'm a part of, that I'm loosely a part of. I show up a couple times a month, not regularly, but I do show up a couple times a month. So I decided to go for their front, uh, their Pride Run, um, and it was a blast, and it was great. I always have a good time with this group, welcoming, friendly group. Um, the thing that I'm ranting about here is that it feels like Portland has forgotten about its waterfront. Even in the midst of the Rose Festival and Cinco de Mayo and everything that happens there, the waterfront is looking like it needs some love. Just, it is, it feels like it's understaffed. There's always trash around it. There are still, of course, lots of people camping on it. Um, especially on the east side, there's trash all along the river. I can't tell you how many times I, I did the front runners run and ran along the river this past uh, winter and spring when there were campfires there. Um, it is getting better. It absolutely is getting better. I will say that it's definitely better than it was a year ago, but it's still rough. So that is my rant and I want it to be better. I want us to form some sort of, obviously not a bid, that's a business improvement district, which doesn't make sense for a, for this, because there are no businesses unless there are the, the restaurants on the waterfront that want to do this, but some sort of neighborhood group, some friends of the waterfront loop or something like that. Um, and maybe that does exist that I don't know about. I should do some Googling. But uh, something like that for people to then take care of and to get some money to take care of the waterfront because it's beautiful and I want it to be better. And that brings me to my next point, which is a thought I've had for a while and I don't know when's an appropriate time to share it. So I'm going to share it now. And in that there's all this talk about the uh, widening of I-5 through the Rose Quarter for traffic reasons, which I totally understand um, as much as I hate cars and think that Portland should not be a city that tries to expand roads because that just causes more problems. As we all know, building more roads increases what? Increases traffic. That's right. So don't think for a second the traffic is really going to be that much better when you expand I-5. might help a little bit, but it won't help much because if you're sitting in traffic, you are traffic. You're part of it, which means we all we need to find ways to use other modes of transportation. See, I told you this stuff runs in my blood. Um, so here's my idea. We're talking about expanding the I-5 corridor. 
which traffic is always the worst in bottlenecks. When freeways come together, when lanes merge, um, that's when traffic is always the worst. So here's what I think, Port and Portland needs a big idea to get excited about right now. So I'm trying to solve one problem by talking about the uh, the Rose Quarter issue and create a new, uh, a, a, big, a big solution, a big exciting solution for Portland to get behind, a big idea. So here's what I think. Now, some of you are going are gonna to think this is a terrible idea right from the get-go because it will increase a bit of travel time for people, but just hear me out. So 84 East... I'm sorry, 84 heading west, you know, you kind of ends at the waterfront and you either go north on I-5 or you go south on I-5. I think, controversial opinion here, what we should do is actually reroute all I-5 north and south over to the 405 through the west side of downtown, through the sunken freeway, and get rid of I-5 north from like the south waterfront area when it crosses over the bridge um, and, and meets up with 84. So get rid of that section. And we could do a couple things here. Now, this is where I think it's actually really exciting if you hear me out. What we could do is one, get rid of the, the freeway being right along the, the waterfront on the east side, which is just this crazy, ugly, disgusting thing to have right along a beautiful water waterfront, which could be incredible. Could be nice green space, could be apartment buildings with shops, could be a wonderful place for people to live, and could really be like this, uh, uh, Boston has the emerald necklace, like it could be really be our version of the emerald necklace, having green space all the way around the river. How amazing would that be? Then, if we didn't want to get a, get rid of the Markham Bridge there, which is old and ugly, but does have the best views in the city, and I, I will argue that, that when you drive across the Markham Bridge there, it's incredible. That top floor, you can see the city, it's incredible. What we do is we then turn the Markham Bridge into a bikeway for people to be able to bike across it and also a park. Turn it into Portland's version of New York's High Line. Put up trees up there so you've got this gorgeous park with an amazing view Yes, it would take a ton of money. Yes, I know this project might be insane, but I think it would be incredible. Then it would also get rid of the bottleneck of I-5 and 84 merging to go north on I-5. Because basically all what would happen is 84 would just merge right north on I-5. And if you wanted to go south on I-5, you'd go over the Fremont Bridge, the one with the big flag. Um, so it, might, it would add, you know, probably add 10 minutes for people driving that way. But think about how incredible it would be to have the east side waterfront. We'd get, we'd gain 15, 20 blocks, maybe even more. I haven't actually done the math. We'd gain a lot of blocks of waterfront there, which would be incredible. Um, and also, if we kept part of the Markham, or the Fremont, no, sorry, I'm losing, I'm getting confused with bridges now, the Markham Bridge, then we could have this incredible park with the best views ever. And it would be a huge tourist draw. Okay, that's my idea. I am just a lowly podcaster and therapist, so somebody who knows how to make that happen, which would take a lot of money and a lot of advocacy, and, a, and because it involves a interstate freeway, it would also involve the feds. It's a big project. I recognize that. Let's see. I'm a couple years away. I'm, how old am I? Nearly 40. So I'd love to see it by the time I'm 50. I think that's feasible. That's possible. Somebody who's very passionate about this, who has a lot of energy, you should take this project on. I'm telling you, it'd be a game changer for the city. We'd be the coolest. Well, we already are the best city in the world, but we'd be really cool if we had this amazing park with this incredible view over the city. And you know what? Even if we just got rid of that, that bridge and no park, then we'd still have this great emerald necklace loop around the water. All right. That's a long rant and rave for me. I promise I won't always talk that much at the beginning of these episodes. 
Let's talk about Jonathan Maz. Jonathan Maz is the founder and editor of Bike Portland, uh, which is the city's premier place to go for bicycling information. Um, I've been following him for many years. Bike Portland is 18, over 18 years old. Um, and he is a journalist, photographer, cycling advocate, as I said, and he's a podcaster. Bike Portland also has a podcast. Um, he's also very active on, on social media, and I always I recommend anybody to follow him because he's kind of on the pulse of what's going on uh, in Portland when it comes to uh, cycling and the cool things Portland does that aren't just focused on cars. I'm a big cyclist myself, so I always like to pay attention to what he's doing. Um, in the episode, you're here, he talks about Portland's heyday of cycling being over. And I refuse to accept that. I think Portland has many cycling heydays in it. Maybe we've had one that is now, that has crested and come down, but I think that we can get back there. I think we can be the best bike city in the country because you know what? If we want to meet any climate goals, we have to encourage people to get out of their cars and into their bikes. Even electric cars are bad for the environment. I'm pro electric cars, but they're not good for the environment, of course. And I can tell you a million reasons why, um, but we need to get people on their bikes. So, okay, without uh, any further ado, here is the great interview that I had with Jonathan Moss. Okay, cool. So doing a little bit of research on you, uh, you grew up in Southern California. Yeah, I grew up in a town, well, all around sort of East Los Angeles County and Long Beach and went to sort of junior high and high school. So my formative years were in, in Orange County, a little town called Cypress, which for folks don't oh, yeah. know is sort of close to Disneyland near Buena Park. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, when I had heard that you also lived in Long Beach at one point, I, uh, I the connection to bikes, because I remember when I, I, I used to live in Southern California and I used to go to a lot of like public meetings in Long Beach for a grad school project. And they desperately wanted to call themselves the Portland of Southern California. Uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to bikes so anyway i don't know if that i don't know if you had much experience biking in long beach when you were there but, it's um, actually a really cool town for biking i remember yeah. back kind of at the start of bike portland i had a friend that was doing some bike stuff there and i was pretty and i was like thinking of all the cities i would like consider living in you know like in california long even beach. like long beach long beach would be it it's just got that small town big city feeling and they had a kind of a cool little bike culture there and stuff so they they have some pretty nice things happening Totally. Yeah, it's a cool spot. So why did you bounce around so much uh, growing up in all the different places you lived? Well, I probably, you know, I had a, my mom was raising three boys uh, as a school teacher. Uh, uh -huh. And I think her and her husband, so my stepdad, I think had just gotten into this thing of trying to hustle and like fix houses up and sell them as a way to kind of make money. I think that was part of it. Um, but yeah, before we all sort of moved in together, all, you know, the two families blended finally by the time I was in junior high. Before that, we were just moving around to different houses just because, you know, we're people that move. And I remember uh, my brother's uh, schoolmates got in a shooting, you know, in one place in Long Beach uh, and Whoa. we moved. Someone walked into our house and stole our TV at one time. And so my mom moved again then i mean it's just kind of like some of the stuff was just kind of moving around to try to find you know try to find a a, a better place to live uh and then yeah then moving in with the with a step family and kind of blending ourselves uh in orange county kind of finally got a house where they, my parents still live now my stepfather and my mom in the same house where in the, you landed in cyprus yeah yeah oh very cool okay so i you know i'm a therapist as well so i'd, I'd be remiss if i didn't ask how uh, a couple of those pretty intense uh, 
situations that encouraged y'all to move, how that affected you? I don't think it had too much impact. I mean, this was more just like, hey, there's stuff in the neighborhood that is yeah, not just great. Sketchy. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't as if, you know, it was nothing like really a huge personal impact. It's just things I remember, you know, from a, a young age where, I mean, we just happened to live in a part of, in a part of the city where bad things were happening. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the mother hen thing. I think my mom was just trying to find a, a place that would be more, a little more quiet, a, li a little quieter, a little safer. So we kind of, yeah, that's when we first moved sort of right to the edge of Long Beach. And um, okay. uh, yeah, and I think just, yeah, just trying to, trying to find, find a good place for her kids is all that was going on. But, you know, impact me personally, I, I do remember growing up like that for sure. And I think it, it helps inform some of like, you know, my general stances on, on the world and how I feel about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but um, ultimately it, it wasn't a major impact because it wasn't necessarily like stuff that happened to us directly. Right. So this was like general crime and general Around. bad stuff going on. Yeah. It was kind of in the atmosphere. Right. But no one totally. in my family kind of directly was, you know, directly impacted or anything like that. That's good. Good. Uh, what, so this is tying into obviously your career now, but like, were there early signs in your life that you were going to become an advocate, that you were going to be somebody who wanted to, whether it be a bike advocate or just an advocate at large? That's a good question. I've never thought of that in terms of like, you know, early life stuff. I mean, I, I recall always being somebody who, got along with a lot of different kids. Right. So, yeah. and I think, I think in terms of being like a community leader advocate kind of person, that's a trait that has helped uh, where I can, you know, empathize, empathize and understand a lot of different types of people. Yeah. And I tend to have friends and friendships in a lot of different circles at the same time, which I think is super important um, in terms of like just informing perspective and um, trying to be in a place where, you know, you can think about how a lot of different people might experience something and then think, you know, you can see more things, hey, this is unfair and that's unfair because I know, you know, I know there are people that, you know, can't do this or can do that or, or, or vice versa or whatever. So, I mean, early on, I don't, I don't necessarily, I mean, I think I didn't really start thinking about advocacy for any other issue um, in except for cycling. And that was pretty, I mean, I was a young person. I, I wasn't like, um, I, I remember writing a debate about mountain bike trail access in my English, like junior high, a junior class and junior in high school. So that was great. That might be kind of early, I know. And then I was in a place where there was really no bike advocacy happening right. at all. Uh, totally. Orange County. Yeah, there <laughs> yeah. was no, there was no nonprofits around cycling in my town in high school. No. I was definitely like an outlier for, you know, my stepdad was a huge cyclist. So he really uh -huh. got, got me and my mom. We all used to ride together. I mean, they took me out on like a hundred mile bike ride when I was 12 years old and that he got me hooked. On you rode a hundred miles when you were 12? Yeah, they threw me out. I was like one of the first people to have what, what they called a mountain bike back then. Uh, this was like <laughs> right at the dawn of like specialized bikes being in a bike shop. And I remember I saved up my money and this thing was like $520, which I thought was like an obscene an amount, of money. amount of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it was like a really good specialized uh, stump jumper uh, which is a legendary bike and people might know. Uh, um, yeah. And I remember buying that thing and then I uh, uh, just got into cycling. My, yeah, my stepdad was a huge cyclist and it still had the knobby tires on and they threw me into this hundred mile ride. And we started in, in when the sun was coming up and I, I didn't finish till they were like taking down the signs. But I was happy because I never walked a mile in the whole entire ride. Uh, and I was one of the few people with a knobby tired bike. People thought I was crazy. 
Um, That's so much work. <laughs> it was a lot of work. But I mean, it was a formative thing because I, the fact that I finished it was, I think, yes. a huge a huge confidence builder for me just as like a cycling person. So I think that was like, that was like a big moment in terms of setting my trajectory into sort of like seeing the world through, you know, in, in sort of cycling terms. Uh, but then, yeah, I, I, I got involved with some advocacy uh, in, in college too, uh, okay. for sure. Uh, in, in Santa Barbara, where I went to yeah, school, you see Santa Barbara. Uh, I remember writing like an op-ed in the in the local newspaper about uh, some trail conflicts that, that people were having. You know, the whole horse hiker versus mountain of biker course. thing. Oh, yeah. So I've, been, yeah. I've been around that for a lot of years. And um, so, yeah, I remember writing an op-ed in the paper about that and sort of dabbling into some different advocacy stuff. But it wasn't until I got to Portland that I was like, you know, super just dove head first and kind of like became. And I didn't even get into advocacy in Portland purposefully. I got into it more just as the fun side of cycling. And then right. uh, as, as I got more enmeshed in the community, advocacy just became kind of a natural space to live in, I guess. So what did you want to be when you were a kid, when you thought about what you wanted to do for work? Well, I was a, I was a beach kid, you know, I grew yeah. up, I grew up on the water. Uh, my grandma had a swimming pool. We, we, we grew up next door to her. Um, and, uh, our whole lives were just swimming. And then, uh, when I moved to Long Beach and Orange County, we always lived not too far from the beach and we could take the bus or ride our bikes down the riverbed and get there. Oh, that's perfect. Um, that's all I ever did really. I mean, that was my favorite thing, uh, besides playing basketball, but, um, yeah. uh, I, so I was into being a marine biologist for a while. I think that's part of what appealed to me to go to UC Santa Barbara. Um, you know, right. At my dorm was basically right on the beach. It's super nice. Um, that's a beautiful I mean, I, spot. <laughs> I, yeah, it is. So, I mean, if there was ever anything I was, I would think about, uh, I, I wanted to kind of be in, in something related to the water. And then I think later, later, in, as I got a little bit older, I went through this phase of really wanting to be in like advertising and marketing. Um, okay. I've always, I've, I've always been really, really into like, um, words and reading and writing. Um, that was kind of my strong thing, you know, all through, through school and stuff. And, um, you know, I had a whole, uh, I come from a whole, uh, family of teachers, you know, grandmas and aunts and my mom. So I think that was kind of a natural thing that language and, and, and words were, uh, were really fun to me. Was and I was just an fast teacher. No, she was just a, a she was a great school teacher. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I was just, for some reason I got super into just words and I love slogans. I used to keep like a a list of like really good slogans and 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 I just I was really fascinated by advertising as like a really small kid I remember like sitting in my grandma's the front seat of her car reading billboards like that's how I taught myself to read I love uh, that. and it was just one of those things so uh, for a while uh I, I actually did that before I did by Cortland I was really in my had my own firm doing like marketing and PR really really loved uh, just that aspect of of it um so and I, I remember applying to a few ad agencies uh, in in my early years and didn't get the jobs unfortunately but for some reason, I thought that would be an interesting, an interesting field to be in. So you talked a bit, a bit about this before, but it sounds like your stepdad was really the major bike influence in your life, bicycling influence early on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I thought he was like the strongest human on the planet. He was awesome. <laughs> awesome. He grew up, he grew up in the hills of Los Angeles and uh, okay. was like one of, he was one of the early people that would like hang out in bike shops when they were, when Americans were just, in, just starting to like import frames from Italy and he's Italian. So he, he was just like an amazing cyclist, like all my life. Uh, and has ridden, he still, he still rides. Uh, he's had some knee problems now, but he's still been riding. Uh, and yeah, I just, uh, I always thought that was just really cool. And, uh, just trying to keep up with him was like something that I, I thought was like an insurmountable feat. Uh, but you know, as I got older, I was able to, to ride faster and faster and we did, we got to do a few rides together and stuff like that. So, 
um yeah he was a big influence cycling wise for sure and then i got into racing in college uh and that was a whole nother sort of chapter well ucsb yeah i was on the cycling team there i was a big mountain biker at first i um when I got my first mountain bike racing bike, I was working like construction in the summers with my friends, uh, my friend's dad's company. And I, we were making pretty good money working these crazy construction jobs. And uh, wow. I saved up for a mountain bike. It was like $1,800. Uh, it was <laughs> it was an awesome bike. And I always felt like if I didn't race it, I would be like a wannabe, but we would call them posers back in the day, you know, like a big wannabe. Of course. You know? I, I have older brothers and, you know, so I have this, this thing of like competition, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I thought I can't own this, uh, I can't own this, uh, racing bike if I don't actually race. So, uh, I ended up racing that. I think it was like a freshman, sophomore, uh, my freshman summer of college, I should say, I started just entered a random bike race, uh, on my mountain bike. And I was just, I, I loved it. And it was hooked from the start. Uh, and I mean, those are then... some gorgeous mountains to bike through right around there too. It's so oh, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, Sierra yeah. Nevada, uh, you know, uh, San Bernardino Mountains and stuff. Yeah. I mean, California, we a lot of close by, really good racing back. And this was back sort of during a hey, more of a heyday of mountain biking uh -huh. uh, when there was a lot of mountain bike racing going on. So, yeah, and I went up to I went up to UC Santa Barbara and was this, you know, this budding mountain bike racer person. And then uh, there was a really bad winter where it rained a lot and you can't ride mountain bike trails in the rain. So right. I remember I, I put slick tires on my mountain bike and I was riding around campus and I bumped into the the road cycling team, all these guys with like shaved legs, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> wearing heart rate guys. monitors yeah. and, and uniforms and looking <laughs> yeah. all very, very, uh, you know, just uh, very, uh, what can I say? Very professional, let's say. <laughs> I, I, so I was impressed by that. And I, I fell into becoming friends with them and then ultimately got into road cycling and joined, joined the team and stuff. And then raced really seriously for a couple, for several years in, in college and up and down the West Coast and stuff. Sounds like you're pretty good. I was, I, I was okay. Yeah. I mean, I, my best year, I was, I was ranked seventh in the Western conference overall. So I think that was pretty awesome. Uh, uh, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 It was really fun. We raced everything everywhere from like Chico way in Northern California, all the way mm -hmm. to like San Diego. So it was a huge conference. Um, and I went to nationals, national championships a few times, but I had some, some pretty bad, uh, untimely crashes, you would say, uh, that really discouraged me. And it just sort of like reminded me how, like fragile uh yeah. cycling can be in terms of a pursuit uh you spend a lot of money you spend a lot of time and effort and someone can crash in front of you in a national championship race and your whole season's over so that happened to me uh like one and a half times it happened once at regionals and once at nationals and i was super discouraged so that's devastating uh, yeah it was pretty it was pretty bad um i mean just totally wiped me out and that was it one of them was on the lap right before the end and i was in a good position to place pretty well um oh so, yeah, that was a bummer. Uh, but also, like, I was like not really on track to graduate because I was racing and riding bikes too much. And that was the goal. My, yeah, <laughs> yeah. My my girlfriend at the time, who I'm still married to, she um, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty obvious that she was like encouraging me, hey, like you better, you better focus on school. And and you know, the counselors called me in at one point at UC Santa Barbara and were like, hey, so you've been here three years and you don't have a major. What are you gonna do? <laughs> Uh, you're like yes so, i do it's biking yeah it's biking <laughs> uh, so uh, and anyway i was able to i find that well, there's a combination of things and i was just sort of like you know ended up ultimately buckling down and, and stopped racing as much and and, and uh finished school anyway, but i always rode i rode a ton after you know after what? i left santa barbara i i asked this out of my own experience because i went to college in boston and i got hit by a cab on my bike in boston and uh it kind of changed my relationship with biking for a little bit um, I'm a avid bicyclist myself, um, but I'm curious, how did those crashes change your relationship with biking? 
bicycle. I think they turn they I think they turned me off to the ultra competitive side of it. Yeah. Um and certainly like that very like highly sacrificial road road cycling thing. I mean, we were very very serious about it. I mean, like I was shaving my arms for like a whole series, a whole, you know, season just <laughs> yeah. to get, a, you know, try to get like, we call them marginal gains, right? So yeah. <laughs> on, on the team time trial team, like guys were like taping their nostrils shut and shaving their uh -huh. arms. Like we were super serious about it. Um, so to have, to have the crashes happen and to like, it just seems like such a random harsh thing to have happen. And you're just like, Oh, okay. So my whole, my whole season is, is over now. Uh, yeah. Other than that, I don't think they, I mean, they probably turned me off into that aspect of it. And so I went back to like more just kind of casual fun, you know, cycling, yeah. riding around town and getting more back into the woods and the dirt, which was always my first love. Um, less about competition. Yeah. Less about competition. I mean, I still like competing and I, I competed all the way up to a couple of years ago and in, in various kind of, you know, cyclocross I did some mountain bike racing up here and stuff, but um, uh, yeah, it just kind of, I think it helped reinforce for me, like how much of how hard it is to like really be a highly competitive cyclist and how much it takes and so the money intense. and focus is a considerable and it only took me it's only been a few years that i've like a few years ago when i finally gave that up i mean i'm i'm almost 50 now and like i was like pretty serious still about cycling several years ago like i was you know kind of had goals and was training and trying to do some big endurance events and stuff and then I finally just stopped it all. I uh, had some knee stuff happen too, which helped, which helped encourage me to do that. But slowed you down. You a know, bit. Yep. Yeah, slowed me down. But also, like my other experiences in the cycling world, like I, I don't know if people who are in in close into racing really understand like how much uh, it, it's it's such a huge like personal thing to do, and it costs a lot of money and time. Uh, and I, I mean, I have real regrets of like spending my time on my bike mm. so much i mean to be honest really? like just in terms of like the time away from my family i mean i have three kids you know and a wife right. and i spent even in my older years right i mean in my four you know early 40s mid 40s i was out there in the mornings you know riding cycling, by myself just, out yeah. cycling which i love doing it don't get me wrong it was super fun i mean i could ride from my house in, in north portland and be in the most amazing places under my right. own power i mean I could ride a hundred miles, you know, before the kids are done with breakfast kind of thing. I just love doing that. Um, uh, but it was a huge sacrifice, right? Like it was a lot of time of that I wasn't, I wasn't doing something else. Um, and I, I, because I've always been really competitive, like if I was getting ready for a race, I would always, you know, I would spend more money than I should or do whatever I could to get the certain part I thought I needed to like compete, mm -hmm. which is silly. And uh, there's just all these weird things that once you step away from like the racing scene and look, look back at it, like at least for me personally, it just seems really increasingly hard to justify yeah. um, for me personally, that amount of time. And then I think, you know, even in recent years, like given all the just really serious things happening in the world, like to try to focus so much on riding a bicycle very fast, just seems like a very, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just such a trivial self-oriented pursuit now in hindsight. Uh, but whatever more power to people that do it but i'm i'm totally like not interested in it anymore <laughs> it that and that feels like a hot take coming from the bike portland guy you know to say like actually i've stepped back from biking and you've talked about this before of course but i've stepped back from cycling because it's just it took over too much of your life yeah i mean and, and i know a lot of that's just me right like that's just how i am when i get into something i really want to do it i want to do it yeah exactly <laughs> which which has, has been you know uh, to my detriment in some regards i mean i've had Five knee operations, you know, I used to think I was going to oh, be wow. in the NBA and I, I spent all my, all my waking time practicing basketball back, back in the day, uh, and ended up, you know, basically ruining my legs from it and all this stuff. <laughs> but, um, mm. and then when I got into cycling, I was like 
fully into cycling, right, to the point of almost dropping out of college uh, to race. Um, and then, you know, when I started Bike Portland, I basically like devoted my entire life to it right. uh, to the to the point where, I mean, it was most pretty much the most important thing in my life. Um, you know, outside of my family. And sometimes I was going to say, does your wife know that? No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a point of contention and it's something that I'm very, you know, um, I I'm happy to, to talk about. I mean, I, I never, I didn't have my priorities right when I first started Bike Portland for sure. And I, and I, and I regret the time I spent, you know, at bike events when I right. didn't spend them with my kids who are now two, you know, almost have two of them in college out of the house. And I think about that a lot. I mean, luckily I had a gap between my third kid and in that gap, I was able to like reorient yeah, and reprioritize reprioritize. And I, I have a little bit more maturity just as I age to say, holy moly. Like, I mean, I started by Portland when I was 30, right? Yeah. So I'm 48 now. And, uh, you know, those early years, I didn't have my priorities straight. I don't think. And, um, uh, I spent too much time. And like I said, I'm also personally, I just tend to really get into things because I, I want to be the best at them. I want to do them really well. Yep. Um, and, and bike Portland was no different. I, I wanted to sort of just prove to everybody that I could do this thing and create a, a news outlet just for the stuff that we care about uh, and do it really well and impress everybody every day. Right. I was yep. really driven by that. Um, so it, it made me kind of be, be very out of whack with my other, you know, the work-life balancing has always been hard. It, it doesn't help either that I really love doing it. <laughs> so yeah, of course, it, it's, of course. It's, it's very fun for me. It's very enjoyable. It, it's, it's really like, yeah, it's just so fantastic to be a part of it. So uh, it's only been in the last, you know, seven, eight years probably uh, that I've I've had a, like a healthier approach to, you know, the kind of work. And it's still sometimes challenging because I tend to get too involved, <laughs> you know. Well, I appreciate how candid you are about trying to strike that balance. I mean, you've built a name for yourself for sure. And Bike Portland has been quite the success, uh, but it sounds like it's come at a cost. Yeah, huge cost. Uh, you know, the family cost, the the just the mental cost that that I've my my brain has gone through all kinds of right. uh, experiences. Let's say uh, right. good, bad, everything, but it, it takes a toll, and I can I'm starting to feel it now, getting into year you know close to year twenty. Um, and also, like the the thing I never would have thought ever would have thought, especially now it's related to winding down. You know, being such a serious bike rider, um, which is like the physical toll. Like you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have like things that happen with my arms and hands uh, and I have, you know, just stuff related to just eye strain. I mean, you know, my eyes are going bad and like just the, the, the amount of sitting that I do. So there's this like physical toll as well. And like now when I when I go to work an event, and I've got all my camera gear on me and stuff. It's like, oh, wait a second. Uh, this is you not as it. easy as it used to be. You know, so I can definitely I can definitely feel it for sure. Um, you know, the, the, the arthritic knees and all that kind of stuff now that is that is popping up. So, yeah, it's definitely taken a toll for sure. Um you know, at this point, I'm still, I'm still fresh and spry enough to, to do it. And I think mentally still healthy enough to be able to do it. But I can see a time where I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. Because it's just like, it's too, it's too taxing to keep doing it's hard. Yeah. Wow. I want to ask you, you I, know, I know you have three kids. Um, did all three of them ride 100 miles at 12 years old? And if not, why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know, the other the thing is, is that my, my kids aren't really that into cycling, uh, which is wow. something I think about quite a bit in terms of like, yeah, how did that happen? Know, I, I think it gets back to, I think it gets back to what I was saying uh, before about how I kind of screwed up my relationship with cycling and bike Portland and my family, because, and this could, this is all just 
could be total speculation, right? I'm not a professional. You are, so maybe you can <laughs> figure this out. But, you know, I, I like to speculate about these kind of things. Of it's kind of a, a pastime, right? Yeah. But I think that, I mean, this is so, uh, you know, first of all, as long as my kids have been alive, they've known that, that cycling is dad's job. Yep. And that's the work. And I think that they have understood from an early age that, that I have a, that I have a tremendous amount of passion for my work. Yes. And I think they understand that that's the thing that pulls me away from them. Of course. So they're going to resent the passion and they resent that. And I think too, I, I, the thing I think about a lot is when I used to, when they were younger and I would take them to events, you know, in a a trailer or whatever. Um, and I, Hey, it'd be fun. It's a bike event. Like, why don't you come? But guess what, guess what happened when we would get to the event is that I would go into work mode, right. right? And I would be, my eyes would be on the next photo or the next conversation I felt like I needed to have with people. And I, and I can recall just them not being fully participating because of that, right? Because they were kind of looking for my attention or not sure where to go. And like, yeah. that was a really big mistake. And I think that beyond the impact it had on my relationship with them, I think it, you know, probably soured them a bit on cycling in general and just didn't give them good feelings for it. Uh, so both my older daughters, uh, who are, you know, one's a senior in high school, one's in college. They, they are definitely not into cycling. My boy who's 12, him and I have a little bit of a different relationship. It's a little, I, I think a little stronger around that. And he'll, he'd hop on a mountain bike and go mountain biking with me yeah. in a heartbeat, you know, but, but he's also not, he doesn't like bike around town and doesn't ask me to go cycling. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of weird. They're not, they're not really into biking. And I see, I see obviously lots of people in the community that are out with their kids their and kids. having these great cycling adventures. And I'm like, Oh, geez. So I kind of, that's not really happening for me, but whatever. I mean, not to get too therapisty, but that's, I mean, like that's <laughs> your, your hypothesis here is what we see a lot when, you know, uh, parents' passion becomes their like all encompassing. That's the enemy then from the kid because it takes all the attention away from the kid. You yeah. Know? So yeah, it, I, it, yeah, I, I didn't, and I don't think I realized that that could happen until, you know, it had already happened and it was too late. Yeah. And then it was just like, okay, well now what, now I just have to kind of fumble around and, and figure it out you know you never know they may come back around at some point maybe they'll maybe you'll you'll be going for fun rides when you're when you're older oh i think they will you can't you can't keep people away from cycling i mean it's just totally. too, it's too great it's too great to- totally yeah. um so yeah let's let's uh thanks for opening up and uh, with all the personal stuff here I, I appreciate that i think that that's it draws people in and it's really compelling to hear your story here um, I want to ask you about, uh, obviously I want to ask you about biking and cycling and all uh, in Portland, but first I want to ask about blogging. Uh, my husband's also a blogger. He's been a blogger for 20 years. Um, and he talks a lot about how it's changed, uh, quite a bit. I'm curious about your thoughts, how blogging has changed. You started, you know, you're in the 18th year of bike Portland. Um, tell me what, what your thoughts are about how the nature of blogging has changed. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard, to, it's hard to know where to start. I mean, when I, <laughs> when I first started blogging, I would email a few lines of text to someone at the Argonian, the, the company that was running the Argonians, yep. the Argonian wanted to start these things called blogs and they wanted to have people in the community write blogs. Um, and they'd emailed an, a, a, an email list I was on around in the cycling community here in Portland after I'd, I'd pretty much moved here just, you know, just about a year. I'd only lived here not that long. And I was on this cycling email list and I saw that email pop up and, you know, I have a, had a background in, in marketing and I was yeah. like, Hey, it's perfect. I'll, I'll totally be that person to, they wanted someone to write about biking in Portland. Uh, and I was super into the community. What I was seeing was blowing me away. So, uh, anyway, I would, so I, they, I, I got that gig. It was unpaid. Uh, and so, uh, 
I would email them whatever I wanted, you know, just about yeah. the cycling community, whatever I was doing. And I would email them a few lines and then it would like appear on their, on their website or Oregon live. Right? Just like Oregon magic. Yeah. Just like magic. <laughs> we couldn't put, there was no pictures. There was no like permalinks. You couldn't, you couldn't yeah. link to anything. There was certainly no comments, but, but that was, to me, that was pretty cool. I was like, yeah, it's incredible. Like, wow. It was incredible. And, um, and also because the business that I had, I had my own firm, um, working with small businesses, entrepreneurs. I used to love like garage innovators. I had a pretty, pretty okay name in this, in the bicycling industry of, of working with small companies and helping them get their stuff in the news and just, you know, building their websites, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it hit me pretty early that like, this was like a transformational thing. The fact that anybody could publish anything on the internet right. very simply, right. uh, really it's mind from, blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I pretty, I pretty quickly like understood that it would be powerful. Uh, I mean, I was also somebody who has just been in the internet for a long time, like the old marketing jobs I used to have, you know, like I was the person that was monitoring forums and yeah. responding to, to, to comments about, about people I was working with products and engaging with people on forums. Like I had a deep respect and understanding of like, uh, community, like online communities, not from the earliest days. Cause I wasn't like a computer person until I actually graduated college. Right. Like okay. that's, it shows you some of the timing. Like I got, a, I got my first computer. My mom bought it for me when I, when I graduated college. And then I just sort of became like a total, just studied it all the time and was super into it. Um, but not, but, but from a pretty early time, I was like, okay, I get it. That the internet's super powerful and this publishing thing, the fact that anybody can publish, right. I had some, had some early experiences that were pretty mind blowing. Like I remember, I don't know what it was like a comment or we used to call them trackbacks where if you if you comment if you did something to a blog post someone would get a notification that you did that and i remember seeing one like on a book review thing i meant and i just had these like moments where i was like oh my god somebody from i don't even know is responding to me and it like totally, totally. stuck with me yeah so it's like powerful anyway it's powerful it's it was super powerful for me and i've always loved the news you know like i remember yeah. collecting newspapers in, in grade school and like i couldn't i couldn't stick them in the bag fast enough because i'd just be reading the front pages like i've always been fascinated by the news right wow. so you combine like the internet a love of marketing a fascination with the news and i was just like i was there's just like this perfect storm of stuff where it hit me over the head of like okay blogging is going to change the world like <laughs> you're telling me anybody can have a newspaper and we're all basically on the same ground in terms of like because totally. you have to understand in the in the early days even the legacy media didn't have a leg up. Right. Right. They, they didn't have any more power on the internet than a, it was a total level playing field. It, it was a total level playing field. They didn't have yeah. their game set. They, they didn't, they couldn't buy a bunch of ads and like blanket. The, I mean, it just, it, right. it was so early. Right. And I think there was that sense too, of just like, I, I'm a big into like, maybe not so much anymore, like given what I've learned in recent years, but like believing about like the meritocracy, right? Like mm -hmm. if you have something of value to share, Right. It's rewarded. And I, I've always loved that about the internet, that it, it was not so much anymore. I mean, that was kind of the early dream of the internet, right? It was the early dream. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I, when I started my first, you know, two projects, Bike Portland, and then I sort of really quickly, almost simultaneously, I was also doing one in the bike industry around uh, marketing in the bike industry, which took off really quickly and opened doors for me in the, in the bike industry. I could not open on my own for years. Wow. I was an unknown kid. You know, I didn't really have any big clients in the bike industry because not enough people knew me, right? It was the chicken and egg. Yeah. But once I started this, I started this blog about marketing in the bike industry and all of a sudden, like the industry heavyweights were in the comments. I, it gave me all this like authority because I was able to share what I knew and I didn't have to know anyone. I didn't have to like go to the parties that all the other people went to. I didn't have to have the big ticket client that yeah. opened those doors for me. The only thing that opened the door was the fact that I was, that I was blogging about 
it's like I was smart about marketing. I, I got it. I understood what was happening and people recognized that. And it opened all these doors for me in the in the bike industry. So that was sort of the anyway, so we've gotten off a little bit, but it's changed so much because, you know, I was around before any social I was doing blogging before there was social media. People didn't right. have totally. their own accounts, they didn't have their own following, their own audiences. When Bike Portland launched in July 2005, just a few months after I was emailing those few lines of text to the Oregon Live, <laughs> um, and I, I quickly was like, they started asking me for advice about how to make their blogging network better at the Oregonian, and I remember emailing them back because at this point I was already researching and I dove head first uh -huh. into it, and I, I was online all the time trying to be like, what the heck's going to happen with these blogs? I became a real student of it, and so they asked me like, what I think about how to make theirs better, and I remember I sent them this long email with all these things. You have to have comments, and here's why. You have right. to have permalinks. Pictures are really important. Here's all these other things. And I'm like, why the hell am I doing it for them? They're not paying right. me. You can do it the for yourself. Idea, yeah. The whole idea is you can do it yourself. I'm literally two clicks away from having my own domain name and, yeah. and a free platform to do this. So that's essentially what I did. Um, but when I first started, like that was it. Like there was no other, there was nowhere else in town people could have a platform for cycle to share what they thought about cycling. Yeah. Right. I mean, like it's hard for people that I think that are new to the community or who are younger to really appreciate that moment where publishing a comment on the internet was not a normal thing. It, it's not something you could really do. None of the totally. legacy, if they were even on the internet, they did not have comments, right? So blogs, most of them, the good ones, you would have open comments, like that was a thing. And so, you know, when Bike Portland started, we had, you know, a comment section and we were the, we were topical. It was Portland's heyday for cycling. Like mm -hmm. cycling was really skyrocketing here. The cultural energy was just off the charts. Um, and I was everywhere. Like I said, I was working my tail off. I was at every event, getting to meet every person I could possibly meet and working really hard. So like if I did, if I went to an event, I would be at home that same day, writing it up and getting it online and getting the pictures up right away. And I remember some of those early events where people would just be so amazed to see their picture appear. Yeah, of course, on, on the Portland. internet. It was just, yeah. yeah, on the internet, they were just so excited. And then I felt so excited that they felt excited. And then yeah. I, as I met more and more people, it got more and more fun and it was just became became this huge snowball, but, but you how know, has your relationship it's so much to blogging it, changed? Yeah. I was curious because it's been, it's well, been a it, long time. It's, it's really like a, a sort of innocence lost story. <laughs> like, yeah. It's uh, th those early days were so fun. Uh, and you know, I could do no wrong and nobody expected anything. Everybody thought that, um, I would burn out and then it would right. just be, you know, Hey, this thing's cool. You know, everybody was very friendly, uh, the city, you know, I knew all the people at the city and we would talk about stuff and I'd go into the city of Portland building and hash things out in meetings with them. It was just really collegial, everybody working together. We were all these bike advocates, you know, and all this yeah. stuff. Um, but yeah, it changed a lot as, as time went on and I got, I got more and more serious doing sort of breaking news. That's what really changed everything is when I went from just being a chronicler of the community and a documenter to being like a news person. Right. You know, and that's a big also, change. Yeah, it's it. And I remember the first few stories that that you know really made that happen. I mean, I got I got like one big story before anybody else in town uh, about a lawsuit against TriMet that a, a bike rider filed. Um, and uh, I only got the story because the guy had met me, right? Because I was working hard to know everybody, and I was able to meet the person, and they trusted me. They told me the story, but I, I remember having it like four days or so before before it went on the Oregonian. Uh, and I was like, okay, so now I, now I can break news. And like, by the time it was on the Oregonians website, we had like 70 comments uh, on it. And I was like, wait, so our community is 
is being able to have access to these issues in a way that's like we're breaking stories here before this like major newspaper has it and it just kind of mm -hmm. started to click for me the position I, I could be in so I, I worked really hard to do breaking news and and that that shifted it a lot because you know you fast forward a few more years and you eventually you get you know I got caught into some controversies and right uh your your political friendships uh it's things it's can sour in, it's in it's incompatible yeah. you can't but it took me many years to get to the point where I realized that I can't be friends with everyone. I shouldn't try to be. It's not a good. I don't want to be friends with everyone. That's too um, exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> it's super exhausting. You cannot manage those relationships in a way that's healthy and that also. Right. I mean, you can. But my goal for the site was always to be independent news. I mean, not always, but my goal turned into being. You know, I really wanted to focus on independent news, good quality journalism that really like served the community, didn't serve cycling right so yep i'm not here to be i know a lot of people are like you know for it, i'm not like a bike i don't see myself as like a bike advocate you know like obviously i advocate for the stuff that i love and cycling happens to be that that thing um but that's not like the force with which i bring to my work right like i'm really trying to be like a community journalist a community news operation mm. because i understand that the power of information and knowledge and news can right. have a huge advocacy impact if it's done the right way Right. Totally. News is advocacy in many ways. Yes. Right. And, and if I, I think if I approach it as advocacy first, that news power is diminished. Yep. I you know, agree it really, with you. It really is. And yeah. so that means that I can't, that means that I have to, you know, manage my friendships in different ways uh, and be willing to, uh, yeah, not be friends with a lot of people. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily hang out with everybody in the bike scene like I used to kind of because of that people you know, uh, things have changed where, you know, people aren't always comfortable talking to me anymore like they used to be. And, of course. Which was weird for me because I had so many people that were friends that I knew before the sort of shift and change in Bike Portland. And then after Bike Portland changed, they were not as friendly with me. And that was kind of a cognitive dissonance in my head of like, but wait, I'm, That's the, tough. Same, I'm the same person, but so you can't talk to me anymore because your boss said that you're not allowed to talk to me. So, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the city of Portland literally has an official policy, which it's pretty clear that it's by Portland's fault, uh, where they their 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 employees cannot talk to the media directly, right? You know, and that's been in right. place for you know probably ten years or so now. But it was clear that the access I had to city staff was so good <laughs> that I could I would just call them and they would just tell me stuff. They tell you, they would show up on Bike Portland, and I think that became untenable after you know stakes got higher and and, and some controversies happened and stuff like that. So they all. They all clammed up, which which is fine. But there were there was a few years there where I really resented that policy and was like, oh, it's so terrible. These are of these course, are friends of mine. And amazing now access. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that was a bummer. So, but that's well, just I think part of mature everybody maturing, which I'm I'm totally fine with. And uh, and so now now yeah, so I I was around before social media doing this, and then all the all the newspapers tried to have blogs and have comments, and now what? They've all shut the comments off. Yep. Uh, now, now people are starting to, you know, the pendulum is swinging away, I think, from social media a little bit because people are realizing that totally. you're basically giving your life to a bunch of private tech bros instead of the community. So, <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I'm hoping yeah. that sort of people start to understand that and realize that the value that we have in this community, you know, by the community for the community resource mm -hmm. of Bike Portland is like really where it's at. And I'm speaking to advertisers too who, you know, over the years took out a lot of money from Bike Portland and put it into Facebook, into Instagram, into other other places. Um, right. And I, I've always been a little bit, you know, that's been uh, not not great um, because that's essentially taking money out of our community, you know, just so they can sell, sell more stuff. And obviously I can't compete with those ad platforms, but 
uh, I feel like now people are starting to understand uh, the value to some degree and realizing that, you know, they yes. need to have a life outside of social media. So I'm hoping people understand that and they'll be like the return of the blogs, you know, <laughs> to some degree. Return of the hyperlocal. Yes, which is hyper -local. what Portland is so good with anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I don't call, I don't even think of Bike Portland as a blog. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I, I only use the yeah. word because you used it, but it's. I know. It, that's kind of an old school news. word, too. It, but, is. it uh, is old school. It, people, don't, people don't even really use that anymore, but I know that's what how it started. Hey, creepy people. This is PNW Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. For each episode, we do a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on the topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous cases such as the misdeeds of Boeing, as well as lesser known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13 as well as our spooky stories from Pike Place and Raven's Manor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you'd like to listen. Have, Have a, a creepy-ass creepy day. So, okay, I want to talk yeah. to you about cycling in particular. Mm -hmm. um, in your interview with the spokesman, you said that the moment is over, and that's in quotes, the moment is over for biking in Portland. And you also said that Portland has forgotten about cycling. Can you tell me what you mean by those statements? And then second question, what can we do to reverse that? Yeah, I mean, I think what I was talking about was the sort of cultural moment that drove a lot of the uh, a lot of the excitement, enthusiasm, uh, politics, right? A lot of the attention mm -hmm. that Portland got from 2005 to 2015, right? So sort of mm -hmm. that golden decade of like skyrocketing bike growth, um, Portlandia episodes around cycling, uh, every major media outlet in the world wanting to tell a story about the cool stuff that right. Portland is doing for cycling. Right. I mean, BBC, right. the BBC came here once and, and videotaped, you know, the Zoo Bombers, which is a group of people right. that rides to, I, down, oh, down yeah. the hill from Washington Park. I mean, there's there's peak, there's all these things. I could go on and on and on. I mean, we hosted mm -hmm. the largest handmade bike show here. Lance Armstrong and Robin Williams were in town buying bicycles from local bike shops. Like the, the amount of stories, the amount of cultural currency around cycling in Portland was just like off the charts for that era. Right. And, you know, I mean, I, it, it was a, it, it's a natural thing for cultural moments to end. Um, but, but I also think, uh, you know, because of some of the weird politics in Portland, biking kind of became a dirty word politically. Uh, there were some mm. controversies around cycling. Uh, I think cycling was fairly seen as something that was too white, too male, uh, right. didn't, necess didn't necessarily understand uh, people that were around cycling at that time, didn't understand uh, how to talk about it and how to go about it in a way that was more inclusive of right. people who lived further away from downtown and in our neighborhoods and, and for people totally. that don't have white skin and, you know, who don't have a lot of money. Uh, that was a huge Aren't riding $2,000 uh, road bikes. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole world outside of that, that, uh, yeah. that of people who love cycling and, and, but for, for a long time in Portland, at least the people who were sort of like, you know, who would identify as the cycling advocacy people, right. That just wasn't part of the conversation. It wasn't as if these people were malicious or no. whatever. It just wasn't, it just wasn't part of it. So, uh, so that I think led into some of the political problems that cycling had. And there was also a few specific controversies. I mean, like the figurehead for cycling in Portland was a, a commissioner and then mayor who yeah. got involved with a massive yeah. scandal. Yes, he did. Uh, and, and it just so happened. Talking about Sam his, Adams here for people that aren't sure. Yeah. Yeah. People can look up <laughs> Sam Adams scandal. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I tell this story a lot because I, I do think it had a lot to do with this sort of like plateau and then decline of cycling in Portland politically and in the public eye, because 
Sam Adams was so attached to cycling. And then yes. when he when he faced this scandal and he faced controversy, what a lot of local media did and a lot of other powerful people did is they were like, hey, one way to get at him is to go after his pet thing, which was cycling and transportation. Yep. One way to hurt yeah. Sam. So yeah. yeah, that's what they did. That is, that is absolutely what happened. So the bureau that he managed, right, Peabot, was then fodder for local media to go after and to dig into, right? So uh, as a way to get to Sam and his staff to try to like take him down and all that stuff, which I, I totally get it. I understand why they would do that, but it had an impact on cycling. I mean, uh, some of the, you know, and then when cycling was, was faced with this racial reckoning to some degree yes. locally, uh, where there were people in North Portland who sort of just reached a boiling point when cycling got to be so popular and it came in their neighborhood and they were basically saying, you know, what the heck is going on? Like our right. kids are shooting each other and dying in the street. And you all are coming here saying that cycling is the most important thing we should care about and that we should change our street for for bikes and and safer right. like it, it was just a it was a bad uh a bad little stretch there and i think those headlines sort of like piled on top of each other um and uh led to this place where the city just sort of receded from being bikes first and you know talking uh -huh. about bikes when we have bike related events that didn't they stopped doing that and so that silence um, it, it made the public less aware of cycling. This was also a moment where thousands of people were moving to Portland in large part because of our reputation for cycling and what that meant, which was little totally. streets and, you know, like it was just part of our brand. Um, but then as they're moving here, they stopped hearing about cycling because the politics changed. And then like when Sam Adams left office, the people that replaced him literally came in saying, we're going to be the anti Sam Adams. Yep. So how can you be for his number one thing? If, right. Yep. If you're saying you're anti, so anti his policies, it stopped. Yep. Yes. So it stopped being a priority at the same time, tens of thousands of people were moving here. So it was bad timing because a lot of people that are moving here were also moving from places, let's say in California and elsewhere where they drove all the time. Yes. So they started driving all the time when they came here. And because we didn't have strong enough bike infrastructure set, right, those cars overwhelmed the bike network. So you had this perfect yep. storm of like those habits get ingrained safe. with people, too. And yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then the cultural side, you know, it's sort of fading out because a lot of the people that created a lot of the culture were getting older and having kids and moving out of their, their, their punk houses in inner Southeast and, you know, moving on with their lives. And so you had a mix, you had the politics, the cultural and the demographic shifts all coming to about, you know, 2016, 17, 15, all that. And it just led to like, sort of just a, you know, a moment where cycling was kind of off the radar. I think I feel like a lot of times, you know, Bike Portland was like this candle in the darkness, you know, just basically saying, oh, no, you know, cycling is still, you know, we're still, we never stopped covering local news. And right. there's obviously still stuff happening that was cool and interesting and fun, but not to the extent prior to that. Yeah. Uh, and now I think we're finally to the point where, you know, the, that, that strength of cycling is coming back, you know, the politics is changing a little bit again, and, and we have an opportunity to kind of like rebuild some of that. But, um, uh, it definitely, that, that moment is definitely over. Uh, and it's really like, I think a lot of the advocates in town are having to sort of look in the mirror and say like, how do we recapture that? What do we do to kind of build some power and, and make it so that the re the way we talk about cycling in the future is, um, strong is different than we used to talk about it, but can, you know, can be stronger and we can actually get back to adhering to some of the values and, and good things about cycling that Portland's always believed. I just think we, we started talking about it in the wrong way. Yeah. So my second question there was, how do we reverse it? How do we reverse the, the moment being over? And it sounds like you're saying um, having uh, the way we talk about cycling has needs to change, not the way Sam Adams was talking about cycling. We need to talk about cycling in a more inclusive way, in a more, what would you say? What, what is, what is it? How does it need to be talked about to be different? Yeah, I think 
I think people around cycling, whether you're a city staff person or an advocate or a politician, whoever, I think you need to like really just address all the elephants in the room and get, yeah. get, get yourself where you can be comfortable enough as a person, just embracing the complexities and challenges that, and the yes. sort of baggage that surrounds cycling in Portland. You have to be able to say, Hey, there's a lot of bad stuff in terms of racial injustice. There are a lot of mm -hmm. white people that were at the front of bicycling conversations saying stupid things. I was one of them. So I feel like I could, I could really say that. I mean, I was involved you can I was own it. like right at the front of that. I, and, yeah, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I went through that and I have, you know, I made, I made mistakes. I have regrets about how I handled myself. And, but I think, you know, the, the thing I try to tell people is like, we have to treat, we have to focus on cycling as a verb, not as a noun, yeah. right? Because cycling is a verb. The thing we do, the bikes themselves to some degree, it, are universally loved. Yeah. Right. I mean, obviously you find, you can find an outlier that just hates to ride bikes, but it's, it's pretty uncommon. It's like, totally. yeah, people hate Disneyland. People hate the sunshine. I mean, whatever. <laughs> right. But it, for the most part, cycling is wonderful. Up and down the the socioeconomics, you know, uh -huh. scales up, you know, whatever color you are, are, like people love to ride bikes and riding bikes in Portland is awesome. It's a nice city, streetcar suburbs, right? So it's very compact. Um, and, and so, and bikes themselves are really fun. You can trick them out. They can be an expression of your individual personality. Uh, they, 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 they have so many impacts on your life from, you know, independence and all sorts of fun stuff, whether you're young or old. Um, and that's, that's like, that's like the verb, right? Uh, but, but the noun side that we have to, you know, realize that the, the political side of it and a lot of the controversy, a lot of the negatives that people attach to it, we're just like, those are political social baggage things. Right. Yep. And, mm -hmm. and we can, I think we should embrace those and realize that they're there, but have the confidence to kind of like you know, set the narrative in a different way where we're not ignoring the the negatives to it, but we're embracing the fact that the values of it and that we have to be honest that it's awesome and that that it's this like universally loved thing for the most part, if you, if you talk about it the right way. So, right, uh, right. and you know, it, a lot of it is understanding room, reading the room, realizing where you're at, talk, meeting people where they are, you know, and, and uh, just having a more, like I, like I said before, kind of like, realizing that there are different perspectives of where people come into this stuff from, you know, uh, Absolutely. to me, that's, that's a really important, that's a really important. Not everyone is entering this from being a cyclist racer in college. And yeah. And I think, I think the big mistake, I think the big mistake people, people did have done in Portland advocates and politicians and city staff people is they just lack the confidence in it. I mean, mm -hmm. you need to have a lot of confidence in cycling. You should speak about it confidently because yes. it is so great. And there's so we need it so desperately in Portland. We absolutely need it desperately. It's I a agree. way to reinvigorate the city, the totally. streets, especially right now. Our mental health, yes. yeah, our mental health, our physical health, our environmental mm -hmm. health, like everything. It's so 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 important. It's going to help us grow in a better way, right? We can fit more people into the system and have more yeah. all these things. So be confident about it, but don't but don't shy away from the hard questions and embrace right. them and get them out on the table at the start. I think that's. That's kind of a big thing. What what's happened from the city's perspective is I think that they're so afraid of, of the hard conversations that number one, it saps their confidence for the conversations uh -huh. that should be easy. Of right? course. Of and course. the fact that, that, that the fact that there's they fumble on those hard conversations so much, it just allows people to kind of just walk over them and just kind of like it's just not good. Uh, so that dynamic I think has to shift if Portland is gonna kinda like get its crew back, you know, when it comes to cycling. So, and I want to ask about that specifically, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question from my sister, who I said is a planner at TriMet, and I asked her if she had any questions to ask you, and she said, ask him, what are the top three things local governments should be doing? She said three that uh, local governments should be doing to increase the number of people cycling in Portland. 
Um, let's see, local governments. Um, top three things. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things. I think. See if I you think, can name. See if you can uh, name just three. It's tough. Yeah, I know. people. <laughs> I mean, here there's there's a couple of people. So I'm a bit, I'm a marketing person. I, I think yeah. one of the things that doesn't happen enough is that people in government need to show themselves show themselves doing this stuff. Uh huh. You know, we're missing out on so many, and you know, I, people can have their druthers with photo ops or whatever. But hey, I'm I'm a Americans are highly impressionable to marketing. You Get mean out there like in Ted the, Wheeler needs to be on a bike more? Yeah. How think about in your head how many local elected officials have you seen? Getting right. in the news or, or doing an event where they're on a bike, they're on the bus, they're walking down a street with no sidewalks, they're right. doing some event that's a walk and saying, hey, this is awesome. Like, right. how is that? Does How does that not happen more? It's mind boggling to me. It's the easiest political win you could get. Totally. And it helps the city with a lot of the goals that we have right around transportation mm -hmm. and, and climate yep. and all sorts of other stuff. Totally. The fact so that you want that him to walk, Wheeler, who walk actually, the talk. Walk the talk, get on the bus, right? Do an Instagram post from the bus, say, say yep. you're busting it. I mean, it's it's wild to me that more of them don't do that in Portland. It's an obvious thing. Um, another thing I think, uh, let's see, government leaders can do. Um, I think, I just think being, being a little bit more bold and confident about the fact that when framed the right way, cycling is like a winning issue for, for city for staff a and lot for of politicians. Things. Yeah. Yeah, for a lot, for of, a lot of things. And it, it all it all depends how you frame, you know, I, I see so many city people and government agencies come into a room for a project and talk about, you know, there's just there's all this like tenseness about, you know, we're going to we're going to do this redesign of this street, but don't worry there. Uh, we're going to maintain, you know, your timeliness when you're driving and and, and we're not going to do anything to you, you're still going to be turning. You're still gonna be able to turn everywhere you want. You're still right. going to park everywhere you want. Just, we're just going to make everybody happy. You, you, we've got to reach a point where you have to have the confidence and a communication ability to say, you know what, not everybody's going to be served, you know, not everybody's going to be super happy at the end of this, but we do have goals that we've adopted as a city, you can read them right. all here, here and here. Right. And so in order to reach those goals, we are going to have to do things differently. And I just think there's so much lack of confidence from city leadership, and city staff and planners and stuff to say, just to be just to be honest with people and say, hey, we're going to do things differently. Here's how we're going to do it. Luckily, we've all adopted this plan together that we had a million open houses for we all agreed uh -huh. that we need to do things differently so now here I'm, I'm here to talk to you about a project that is going to implement those changes as we've all agreed they should happen right yep. instead of compromising everything so much that no one really likes the out no one really likes the product right. That's everything's watered down so many times yeah. everything's watered down drivers are mad because they see a bunch of new markings on the road bikers are mad because it doesn't go far enough they still don't right. feel safe right so what does that accomplish? That is Portland incrementalism. And that's why, you know, we're in the fix that we're in is because we're not even strong and confident enough to do the things we've agreed we should do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've all, yeah. and if people have problems with that, just, Hey, we had a whole public process next time you need to make sure you're involved, whatever, like let's, yep. let's start moving, moving forward a little bit on the stuff that, that we know, you know, percentage wise is, is really good. Um, You know, so I just think, yeah, being more, more bold in how we talk about stuff. I mean, just from a, from a basic streetscape thing just protect the damn bike lanes i mean okay. whatever your project you're in i don't care if you're at trimet if you're at multnomah county just put up physical protection yeah. between different users of the road it's it's ridiculous to me how many miles of lanes we have in the city that are used by vulnerable people people on electric scooters people yeah. on mobility devices people on bikes people on skateboards roller skates people on foot 
and they're not physically protected from people who are driving, you know, multi-thousand ton steel vehicles at, at high rates of speed that can result in death. Like, right. it doesn't have to be expensive. You could literally put planter boxes, make them wooden for all I care. Like, it could be plastic if it's just the start. Like, stick something in the road to separate these different right. things. It's Just it, make people it, feel it, safer. It should, it, yeah, it should happen way more. It would be a signal to the community that you care and you understand that fundamental thing about protection which would instill confidence. And then you have that positive feedback loop of, you know, more people using the lanes and then more yes. people demanding the lanes and all that thing. Cause right now too many government agencies are caught in this thing. I mean, especially PBOT, the, the city of Portland, right. where they've invested millions of dollars in projects that are not safe enough for the bikers. So the bikers aren't using, right. but then the drivers are looking at them and going, Hey, there's nobody using there's those no things. Bikers are a waste here. of money. Of course. Yeah. Then they get upset. That's a terrible, that's a terrible political place to be in, especially yeah. when you're in the budget environment that we're in. It's a right? vicious cycle versus a virtuous cycle. To the bone. Yep. 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 Absolutely. So, yeah. Let's fill the bike lanes up. We can do that by sticking a bunch of physical protection in the, you know, in between the lanes and, and making people feel better about using them. And then if we could just get politicians and city people to use them as well and, and take some selfies, I think that would go a long way. <laughs> I think those are, I, I'm right there with you. I could, I have a million questions that I'm not going to ask you because I don't want to take too much more of your time, but uh, let's, let's end on a positive note here before I ask you the questions I ask everybody else. What gives you hope when it comes to the progress of cycling in Portland? Well, the people that are out there doing it, I mean, we are just a couple, we're like a week away from the start of Pedalpalooza. Which, which is my favorite, one of my absolute favorite things we, about Portland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a tremendous, tremendous thing. Hundreds and hundreds of bike rides serving every possible niche interest that you could possibly uh -huh. imagine. Not even <laughs> bike interests. It's people you could love puppeteering or Shakespeare yeah. or Star Trek. And there's a bike oh, ride for you. I, like, I'm leading a Jennifer really, really Coolidge great. themed ride. So it's, it's whatever there you, you want. <laughs> there you go. So to me, that kind of, uh, you know, outpouring of uh, just support from the community in terms of the love of cycling, like I've known it's always been there. It always will be there. Uh, it's just, you know, that that's what gives me hope. It, you know, we also have started this thing where we do a happy hour every Wednesdays uh -huh. at Gorge's Beer on Southeast Just Ankeny. Right next to my uh, house, actually. Really helped. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, you should come yeah. over. I um, know. I need to. <laughs> that, that's really helped sort of, that's made me a lot more hopeful, you know, just seeing how quickly that thing has taken off and how much oh, people yeah. appreciate just having a space to hang out. Um, so, you know, it all, it always just comes, comes down to the people, you know, there's, there's just so many great folks here that, that love riding bikes and they're, they're beautiful and interesting always to me. So as long as those folks are around, uh, you know, there's hope to, to get something sparked and sort of rebuild that fire and keep building. I mean, just today I got a letter from the head of the, the bike loud, bike loud PDX, which is the, uh -huh. the biking nonprofit in town that's doing a bunch of great work. And they have, they just elected a brand new chair and he's, he's young, you know, but he's really optimistic and he's just ready yeah. to take over the world. And uh, when I see a, a healthy activism ecosystem, it gives me hope that, you know, we yes. can, it, we can get back and start to start to get back to, you know, where we were and then, then some, and then even better into the future. Totally. I think that the moment you were talking about before may be over, but I think that there's going to be another biking moment in Portland. I really do. Yep. A different one. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. New and improved. <laughs> Hopefully it's better. Yeah, exactly. If we learn from the previous yeah. moments and we are a better moment now. All right. Yeah. So same questions I ask everybody. If there was somebody else you wanted to hear their backstory, uh, somebody else you'd want to hear on the podcast, any, any, anybody come to mind? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, how about, um, someone named Candace Avalos. Okay. Tell me more. I'm not sure. She, I believe she's executive director of Verde. 
Oh, okay. Which is a nonprofit that yeah, nonprofit uh -huh. that serves folks in the Coley neighborhood, which is an amazing, amazing neighborhood. It's a great area. So it's a big neighborhood. It's got commercial. Yeah. It's got risk. It's just a really interesting part of Portland that I don't think you know enough people know about. Let's say, and it could really sort of point toward like the future of the city in a lot of ways with how it's being developed and all this stuff. So, Candace is really interesting. She's also been a uh, a candidate for commission, I think, a city council. Uh -huh. Sorry, I think she was a city council candidate. So she's yes, got which some is where the name I chops. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's relative. I think she, you know, she's graduated from Portland State. Uh, she's just interesting. She's doing interesting things. She's someone who's not afraid to embrace hard conversations. She has, uh, she writes op-eds in the Argonian every once in a while. Yeah. Um, she's on Twitter and she's relatively candid there. She had, a, she had a big role in the districting stuff or charter reform. That's so, right. Yeah. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for people that put themselves out there in the community and that are sort of like fighting the fight. I won't even say the good fight. We don't even make a value, a value judgment. It's just, yeah, yeah, just she's fighting, out there just working. Yeah. She's just out in the trenches, you know, and like, I can appreciate yeah. people that are in the trenches, especially someone, you know, who, who is who she is, you know, it's not, it's not easy uh, being that kind of person today. So yeah. uh, I, I would say, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more more from her. I thought of interviewing her for my podcast, but uh, yeah. I haven't done that yet. So yeah, get, let's get to know her. I'm a big foodie as well as a cyclist, but uh, and I think everybody, one of the things people know Portland for, one of the many things, of course, is our amazing restaurants. Yeah. Tell me your three favorite restaurants in town. Well, well I'm, I'm not a big foodie or restaurant person, probably because like we don't we don't really That's go out okay. a lot with, you know, not a lot of money to be going out all the time, but um uh, let's see uh, the three places we we enjoy as a family we, we love going to screen door that's kind of classic. a favorite classic yeah yeah really great really great place um poppy chulos is another place i really like uh, nice. uh you know nice. for beauty they have great beauty of tacos totally they have, uh note of caution very strong margaritas but good it's um, <laughs> reason uh, to go there yeah and uh yeah. another place i like is in my in my neighborhood it's called Cerevesa. it's like classic uh, uh midwestern pub style kind of like uh good beer where is uh, it all kinds i of think i've really great seen the sign it's, it's on killingsworth, killingsworth and uh, michigan yeah i know it's exactly also on the name, the name of her greenway so just a few blocks from my house it's it's a really great place it's been there forever which i, I love places that have survived um you know and it's just a good good down home spot meet people they have pasties um and pretty good reuben sometimes oh, uh, but reuben. it's a good place that's awesome that's great you're not a foodie but you just listed three great places so Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, this was lovely. Thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours because we've got a million more questions, but I won't, I won't keep you any longer. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You're welcome, Daniel. Thanks for asking. Yeah, definitely. All right. I will, uh, hopefully I'll see yeah. you at the happy hour. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Jonathan Muzz, everybody. What a great guy. I really appreciate how open he was. And, uh, you know, I personally found it really fascinating and, and just really compelling to hear him talk about how how much he gave has given himself to cycling and bike Portland and what he's lost by doing so. Um, so yeah, thank you again, Jonathan, for being on the show. Thank you for being so open and such a cool guy. Um, I'm continuing to uh, cheer you on from the sidelines here. Thank you everybody for listening. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe. That's what makes people be able to find the podcast easier. Um, just click that button on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this, just click that button that says subscribe and give you the old notifications when a new episode comes up. Um, we've got a, we've got a you know a quarter or a third of the a third I can do math. We've got a third of the episodes left in this season, so we still got plenty to go. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited. I think we're really getting into some some great stuff. Next week is going to be intense. It's going to be a good one. Um, so yeah, listen and subscribe. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.